We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. It's a smaller portion again than we've been doing recently. And really this is a simple message. It's a, a call for the people of God to worship God in his house with fear, with reverence. Uh, and so the goal of this, this passage and the goal of this sermon is to convince myself and to convince you from Scripture to actually worship God with reverence as we look at, at what that means. Uh, and so to help us under, understand that really corporate worship isn't about entertainment, but it's about coming before God with this reverence, with worship in, in all of our hearts. And so uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If not, it's in your bulletin, and you can follow along there. So Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, we are quick to speak, to give our opinions on just about everything. And we are slow to listen and to hear from others. And unfortunately, we are slow to hear from you and your word. Lord, show us. Make us to see your holiness and your character so that we might stand in awe before you. That we might come into your presence with respect and, and still with confidence that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, we know that we do belong in your presence. Lord, give us understanding this day. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. plan to give you 15 seconds of silence and even that was too awkward. <laughs> what you got was about 10 seconds of silence. Uh, how many of you found that incredibly awkward even that short period of time? Okay, me too. Not only uncomfortable but, but wasteful and boring. If I had gone on another 15 seconds, how bored would you find yourself to be? Because the reality is Silence is just not very entertaining, however. Uh, and as we approach this text, I think it's, it's helpful to think for a moment about this culture we live in. Uh, not just the wider culture, but specifically the church culture that we live in. Because there's many churches in the United States today. Uh, we tend to, to worry about where the numbers are, but the truth is people are gathering on Sundays, and, and many people really do go to church. But why? I mean, why are, are you here right now? 
Aren't there a hundred better things you can be doing at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon? You know, why are we all here? And then really, why are we all here is a corporate question. And the, the answer to that is to worship God. We say that over and over again, and we really mean that. It's to worship God. But what about the question of why am I here? Because that's a question that has to be answered individually. And in the United States, in the year 2015, people come to church, to these gatherings, for a variety of reasons. Some come to learn, to hear the pastor go over some theological ideas, uh, practical ways to live in other cases. Some come out of a sense that it's a good thing to do, or from nostalgia, that they remember going with their grandparents or their parents to church, and they want that experience. Others just show up to be seen and to be heard. Others purely because they think, this is a good thing for my, my children, so let's start going to church. I've even had people explain to me, without any embarrassment in their voice at all, that the reason they go to the church they go to is for the purpose of business networking. Others go simply to be entertained. I think in every era of church history, there is temptations that the church faces, temptations to make worship something other than worship. And in the second chapter of the book of James, we, we learn that for them, it was showing some sort of favoritism. That was a temptation that when people walked in, they would say to those that are well-dressed, come sit here, come sit up front in this place of honor. And, and they'd say to those who were dressed in a way that made them seem poor, go sit back there where no one will see you. In Corinth, the Lord's Supper was practiced as a part of a larger meal. And so some people were coming and just eating a bunch of food and getting their fill. And, and others were drinking so much wine that they were becoming drunk. It's probably safe to say their communion cups were larger than our communion cups. You'd have to get a whole bunch of ours for that to be an issue. But for the church today in our culture, we face this temptation to make the focus of church the entertainment of men and women and not the worship of God. See, there's a, a church in the suburbs where Laura and I grew up, and, and in college we visited a few times. We, we visited the youth service first, and as we were there, there was an illusionist who did magic tricks for 40 minutes, and then they dismissed. And when we went to the adult service, we watched live on stage these two cars that were on rails that were set up to crash into each other and make this big collision with sparks and everything so that they could talk about the unexpected collisions of life. Uh, we visited a second time, honestly, because we were interested in what kind of craziness we'd see, not with good motives. This time, the pastor spent 10 minutes playing Guitar Hero against the worship leader, just to introduce the idea that sometimes band members don't get along. One week, they even had a motorcycle jumping over his head while he preached, a uh, motocross motorcycle. And it sounds crazy, but this is a church that has an average attendance of over 18,000 people each Sunday. That's more than the NBA team in town gets. And now I need you to understand this. I don't say this so that we might look down on churches that do that. And that's going to be the temptation when we hear stories like that. I, I also don't mention that so that we can come in here each week and just pride ourselves that we're not like them. For not being about entertainment. Or so that we might boast that we have this liturgy that's designed to, to bring us into this participation in worship rather than being entertained. And I say that because th the truth is, just because there isn't a motorcycle jumping over my head right now, it, it doesn't mean that we're coming into worship with a proper view of who God is. Of God who is 
worthy of nothing less than our absolute reverence. See, if ever the word of God leads you to personal pride, let me assure you, you've misunderstood the word of God. See, the reason I share this story is I, I think it's easy for us to think of our, our worship as proper because each aspect of our worship is structured in a way that it's contingent on us seeing it in Scripture. For instance, we have a confession of sin, and the reason we do that is because we see God's people in the Word of God confessing their sin in Scripture. And so we do that corporately and we do that individually. We sing and we use instruments because Psalms like Psalm 67 uh, begin with, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so we see that in the Word of God. And this looking to Scripture at what is acceptable in worship, there's a word for this. It's called the regulative principle of worship. And it gives us some guides to us as to what belongs in the liturgy of worship. Uh, However, and this is very important for us as a church, as a people of God, it it does not prevent us from walking in here on, on Sunday and just going through the motions without truly worshiping God. We can still come in here and not worship And Israel at many times was very similar to that. People came to the temple, but not with a desire to truly worship God. Malachi 1.14 speaks of of just how little respect they actually had for God. It says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. See, they said they were going to give this good gift, this good animal, and what they brought was actually a blemished animal. They were supposed to bring the very best for God, and what they brought were these blind and these sick animals for God. Animals that had no financial value or very little financial value, that's what they were bringing to God and giving to Him. I mean, it reminds me, honestly, of uh, when I was a youth pastor, how often people would want to donate these, these couches that they had. Some were, were great, but other of them were full of holes, uh, covered in dog hair, smelled absolutely awful, and they'd bring it and say, this is, this is for the youth, I want to give this. They'll love it. And then you have that awkward politeness of why we don't want the couch. But understand, though, that sacrifice really was difficult. I think we write this off sometimes, like, why not just bring the good animal? You know, you can get them anywhere. But these animals had a great deal of value. It's, it's like if you were supposed to bring a car and to sacrifice a car, and, and you might be tempted to really bring a, a crummy one because... Really, we're just going to light it on fire anyway. You know, it'd be easy to really start reasoning through this. It, it just seems wasteful to burn a good car. So, so really, I'm going to bring my 1966 Volkswagen Bug with no wheels and no engine. Let's, let's burn that. And really, the heart of the issue, the real issue, was that they lacked this reverence for God, this respect for God. Now, our, our passage today consists of of these four admonitions, these four warnings for us to, to see in, in, in regard to worship, uh, particularly in the temple worship here. And the first warning is in verse 1. Uh, listen as I read it again. It says, Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. See, when he speaks of going into the house of God, he's talking about the first temple, the temple that's often referred to as Solomon's temple. And this temple was built in the 10th century B.C., and it was destroyed a little more than 400 years after that. This was a place where the Israelites were required to travel to make sacrifices, where they would bring those animals and and do that. That was a big part of their worship at this time. And God's presence was in the temple. That's where his, his spirit dwelled. 
Uh, but even Solomon understand, even at this time, I think we confuse this sometimes, that really God could not be contained in just a temple. Even Solomon, writing in, in 1 Kings 8.27, says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. He's speaking to God and even recognizing that. And so there's also this second temple that gets built, but that too was destroyed. And today, we live in a world where there is no temple. In fact, the place where the temple was is a Muslim mosque at this point. And so it leads to this question for us, is there a house of God today? Does this mean anything for us? See, Jesus had this conversation with the, the woman at the well. You might be familiar with it. It's in John chapter 4. And they're debating or discussing what is the, the proper location of worship. Uh, in verse 23, he tells her this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. His point is that the location is not important, yet how we worship is. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Christians are called the temple of God. That our bodies are the temple of God. And it's called that because the, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, actually dwells in us as Christians. Also, in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul tells Timothy the reason that he's writing, listen to this, he says, is that we, we may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. See, he's equating the church to the household of God. Location is no longer an issue. Rather, the house of God today is, is anywhere the people of God gather together to worship corporately. And so while we should always approach God with reverence, this text in particular is telling us about corporate worship of God, which is done, well, in community. And so right now, you're in the household of God. You're in the household of God, not because this building is significant, but because of what we're doing here is significant. You know, we could be doing this in an elementary school gym. We could be doing this in an old barn. We could be doing this out in a field. In fact, the weather is so nice today, I kind of wish we were doing this out in a field. But it's unique because it's the church gathered for corporate worship of God. And so Solomon's warning in verse 1 is to guard our steps. It's, it's like when someone yells out, watch your step. What do you do when they do that? Hopefully you don't just keep walking. I mean, you look down, you see where you are, you, you see what dangers are around you. Because you don't want to fall off a cliff simply because you're brainlessly walking forward. And in another sense, it's what Moses is, experiences at the burning bush. You remember what God tells him to do in his presence? Exodus 3.5, God says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So we're to guard our steps. And he then gives this, this example, this proverb-like saying in, in, in our text. He says, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. You have to understand that, that sacrifices in the temple were done in silence. Uh, then the priest would read from God's law, the, the first five books of the, the Bible as we know it today, and, and they would explain it. And, and then everyone would respond by singing songs, and there would be prayers, and sometimes there was a vow made to God. And so the sacrifice of the fools is referring to those who were bringing these unacceptable sacrifices, the, the lame and the blind animals that we spoke of before. But fools also believed that their sacrifices would automatically forgive their sins, even when there was no repentance. 
And that sentiment still exists in the church today, this false idea that our serving others or that our serving in the church or our giving money or it really puts us in some position where we are earning God's favor. And the truth is that's not true. See, what God says he desires is, is true repentance. Uh, listen to Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So this point of them coming silent uh, is that we come ready to listen to God. In our liturgy, we, we open with a call to worship. We stand and, and we read that. And, and yes, our lips are moving in that. We are speaking in that moment. But more importantly, our ears need to be hearing those words because those are God's words. Uh, those come straight from the Psalms and other places in Scripture. And so we begin by hearing God's call for us to come and worship Him. We also have a time of, of silent individual confession. And, and that time, sometimes you wonder, what do we do in this time? We don't always explain that real well. That, you know, I ask God, bring to my memory what I need to confess this week. Help me see my own sin. Help me to know that. And, and then whatever God brings to my mind that I remember, and it's amazing how many things come to mind, confess to God and then just sit in silence uh, and I wait for, for Travis or John or, or someone to read this scripture that confirms to me that in Christ, in the gospel, my sin has been forgiven and then there's that rest in silence I don't think we do that enough to just enjoy the silence uh, so let's look at the second admonition in verses 2 and 3 it says, be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. See, this portion continues with this idea that we ought to come before God with few words. And the reason we should come with few words is because we are not peers with God. That is an easy thing for us to forget. I've learned a great deal in the last 18 months about, about the army. I came in knowing nothing, so that wasn't hard to do. But uh, I can say with confidence at this point that it would be very inappropriate for a, a private to come into the presence of a general and just high-five him and start telling stories. Correct? That would probably be inappropriate. And, and the reason or, or you know, why that would be inappropriate is because you're not peers with this general. You're, you're not at the same place. And, and now I, I think that we hear about approaching God sometimes with this idea of, of reverence, and we think, yeah, but wasn't Jesus approachable? Didn't even the little children come to him? Yes, he was approachable. Yes, Jesus is approachable. But he also gave us this, this model for prayer, right? This way of speaking to God the Father in Matthew 6, and, and many of us have memorized that. We did this early in the service even. But sometimes we forget what Jesus said right before that. Right before he teaches us this prayer about how we come to the Father. In, in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before they ask him. And so, let your words be few. And then we, he begins to teach us this Lord's Prayer. And in the very next verse, when he begins it, he says, Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He, he begins with this distinction that God is in heaven and, and we are in earth. And it seems like a small thing, but it's very much like what we see in our text today. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That separation 
demands a degree of respect that is often lost on us today. And I've tried to think of an earthly example of this, and it's not easy because we tend to think those are wrong too. The best I could come up with was Queen Elizabeth of England. See, they don't vote on her. She's just their queen. You're born, that's your queen. Nobody votes on that. She has no peers in her country. People don't approach her like they would a friend. They approach with this understanding that they're in the presence of someone very important, someone very worthy of respect, and their words are few. In a similar way, God is like that, only properly in that position. And then it moves on in this text. It talks about this proverb about dreams in verse 3. It seems very strange, but it's, it's saying that this endless talking is as worthless as what we do in our dreams. Because you might go to bed at night and you dream and you do all these crazy things, right? And the moment you wake up, poof, they're gone. Worthless. Nothing was really accomplished. And and that's the point of that with our our many words. The third admonition in verses 4 and 5, it it reads, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you not vow than that you vow and not pay. And so this focus turns to vows, these things we say with our words, that are our mouths that we're going to do. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy speaks about vows in, in chapter 23, verses 21 and 22. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing it, you will not be guilty of sin. See, a vow is simply a promise made with some sort of condition on it. Uh, we still make vows today. If you'll buy me an Xbox One, I promise I will never ask for anything else again, ever. Ever. They won't keep that vow. Don't believe them. We also make more serious vows. Uh, marriage vows. We make vows to remain together until death do us part. Uh, in church, we make membership vows. Uh, when we present our children for baptism, we vow to instruct them in the Christian faith, and to disciple them. In the court of law today, as crazy as things can be sometimes, people still swear on the Bible, making a vow to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There's also personal vows that have been made to God. When we might ask God, you do something, you heal this, this person for me, and I, I tell you, and if he does, I'll do something in return. In Scripture, when Hannah is unable to conceive, she makes this following vow to God. She says, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And God answers that prayer. Samuel's the one who's born. And she fulfills that that vow. She brings him to the the temple. And so making the vow wasn't the problem. It's, It's just not fulfilling it. And Solomon here is saying it is better to not vow than to vow and not fulfill it. Pretty simple. Keeping your word is important. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in, in the book of Acts. They, they sold this property and, and they didn't have to do anything. They could have kept all that money for themselves. But they said, we're going to give this to the church. We want to give this to the community. And instead of actually doing it, they secretly kept part of it for themselves. Uh, in Acts 5.4 we read this. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And this is a creepy result, because they end up 
dying. They just immediately die because of this vow they made and refused to keep. Also, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites on a number of occasions, but one of the reasons that he does so is that they taught that it's okay not to fulfill your vows. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-three sixteen, Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So you could say generally, you know, I, I swear on the temple, I will do this for you. And, and in that case, it's okay if you don't really do it. Uh, because you didn't swear on the gold of the temple. It's like when we were kids and, and someone would promise to give you something only to explain later, you know, well, I had my fingers crossed. And everyone knows you don't have to really do it if your fingers are crossed. That's essentially what they're doing on a much more complex level. And in Matthew 5, Jesus takes vows even further, saying, don't make vows to anything. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's the same idea that you say with your mouth. What you say with your mouth that you'll do, actually do it. Keep your word. What you said you'll do in your marriage vows, do it. What you said at your child's baptism, do it. What you said in your church membership, do that. Furthermore, be very careful what it is you say you'll do. Don't rush into membership or marriage or anything until you are truly willing to fulfill the thing you're about to say you'll do. Verses 6 and 7, we see the last admonition. It says, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. See, this particular situation is people making vows to give a certain amount of money into the temple treasury, the temple fund. And when they didn't pay it, a messenger would be sent out to remind them, hey, you said you gave a vow that you would pay this much and you haven't. And, uh, you know, it's not some guy named Vinny with a, a Jersey accent. But somebody would show up their door and begin asking these questions about that. And when they'd show up, some of these people would, would tell the messenger, you know, it was a mistake. I don't know what happened, but uh, I didn't mean to do that. And that was a, a highly offensive thing. And this, this last bit in this text, honestly, is real scary. That when we don't keep our word, God may become angry. I think it's scary because we tend to imagine that God is absolutely incapable of becoming angry anymore. Just incapable of it. And while it, it doesn't always happen, we certainly saw that, you know, with Ananias, even after the resurrection of Christ, they died as a result of not keeping their word. That doesn't mean it's going to absolutely happen to you, but we see it actually happen to them. If you see, though, we've got to understand this, that the fear of God is a good and right thing. Even if we struggle to, to like that. And, and that's why this passage ends with that phrase saying, God is the one you must fear. See, in Ecclesiastes, we, we saw something similar. In Ecclesiastes 3, rather, uh, we saw that we should fear God, that we should stand in awe of God and reverence before him because he's sovereign, because he's absolutely in control of everything. And in this text, we're seeing that we should fear God because he's holy, because of the character of him, because he's, he's set apart, because he has no peers. And that means that we approach him with respect and with reverence. It's the, the same thing we read in Hebrews 12, 28, 29, which says, Therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, a few weeks ago we looked at Isaiah 6, and, and we saw that this fear and this awe that he experienced in the presence of God, you remember how Isaiah responded? Woe is me. Woe is me. In Revelation chapter 1, uh, John the Apostle finds himself in the presence uh, of the risen Christ. And he, and he says in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. He's in the presence of God and he falls down as though dead. And for some reason, we think if Jesus were to walk in here today, we'd fist bump him and ask him, what's up, my homie? You wouldn't. You absolutely wouldn't. You'd fall down as though dead. So to be honest, this is a difficult text today. And it's difficult because it's talking about worship in the context of uh, of temple sacrifices. Well, the temple's gone. Uh, Now Christians are the temple of God. We no longer make sacrifices because Christ was the perfect once for all and final sacrifice. We give tithes and offering in this service, but we don't typically make a vow to give it. And if you don't give it, Travis is not going to show up at your door asking for it. I don't think he will. But it's very applicable to us today. Because when we come to worship, we too can come and absolutely go through the motions. We can sing songs not really paying attention to what we're singing or caring. Uh, We can come with our hearts completely disconnected from the worship of God. I I can remember at times in my life when I would come to worship with this critical eye. I, I would think, I don't like this song. I think we should sing a different song. Or that song sounds Arminian or something along that nature. Or this sermon just seems pointless. What is he talking about? Uh, too many of these I questions. You know, what do I want this service to be? And there's a place to evaluate a service, but it's not when you're here worshiping God. And so let me challenge you to not think about yourself when you enter into worship God, when you enter into the house of God. Rather, to to spend a little time before the service even, spend a little time in thought, remind yourself, I'm here because God saved me. Remind yourself that I'm here because I deserve hell, but I will live with Christ in eternity because of the gospel. I'm here to worship God. I'm here because God is amazing. And I'm here with other sinners, those who might dress weird and smell weird and sing weird and anything else weird, but, but I'm here with them because they, too, have been redeemed in the gospel. They, too, are undeserving, and, and yet, and through the gospel, have been loved by God. And this doesn't mean our, our worship should be dull or stodgy. I think sometimes we think there's joy and there's reverence, and those are on opposite ends. And that's just not the case. Not at all. You know, showing reverence for God is our expressing joy in worship. Joy in the community that he's given us. This celebration of the redemption. But but it's also this fear and this awe that reflects the reverence of who God is. And so when we gather for worship, let us tread lightly with reverence for our God. Because he is great and because he is holy. So as our worship continues today, you know, guard your steps. 
Think about where your mind is, where your heart is, where your focus is. It takes effort. We tend to just want to go on autopilot, but when you come in here, it means you've actually got to bring your mind into focus on who God is. Seek to draw your heart into that and, and, and hope that God will, will give you that. When we come in in the weeks in the future, you know, we, we actually have in our bulletin that reflection at the beginning. It's designed to be uh, a time where we actually slow down a minute before the service and we reflect and prepare our hearts for worshiping God. Uh, use that. Um, let us pray. God in heaven, thank you for your patience with us when we fail to show you reverence. Thank you for the grace shown to Peter when he failed to keep his vow, and we also fail. May we learn, Lord, to guard our steps, to truly be impressed with you and your holiness so that we respond less like the Pharisees and more like the Apostle John and the prophet Isaiah when we come into your house to worship you. God, give us eyes to know how amazing you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.